the young ones go in. We'll just pick which clock looks more favourable to me at the moment. I think it's this one, so we'll go with that one. Good morning, everybody, and welcome. And great to see Ambassan with us as well. You're especially welcome. It's an incredible privilege, as always, to uh, stand here this morning and have the opportunity to share with you a little of what God has been laying on my heart uh, to speak on this morning. Sound-wise, am I okay? I'm even echoey, no? That better? Okay. Um, so as I was sort of mulling over what it was that I was going to share on this morning, uh, a phrase just kept going over and over in my head, and that phrase was, a man after God's own heart. And no, it wasn't about myself. It was just that verse just kept coming into my head. And as I thought more and more about it, isn't that what we would all love to have said about us when our time on earth is done? Is there a greater compliment that we could be paid as Christians at our funeral than someone stand up and say, this was a man after God's own heart? I mean, yes, it would be great to be remembered as a great dad, a great husband, son, physio, and all-round athlete. But as Christians, shouldn't this be the epitaph that we seek most? And then I started to think, right, okay, well, if this is what we should uh, seek for ourselves, then how is it possible that this could ever be said about us? Because certainly I'm very aware that it's not naturally what comes to mind when most people think of me. So I suppose the logical place to start would be to examine the person that this was first said about, and that would be David. You might want to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, as we'll be reading various portions from 1 and 2 Samuel, and it probably wouldn't be a bad idea to keep a thumb in the Psalms too. Maybe like me, part of you is almost a little shocked to hear that this was first said about David. And this is because while David was obviously a man of incredible faith and wrote a considerable portion of our Bibles, he did have his mistakes and his misdeeds, and one particular stands out in most of our minds. But we have to remember that this wasn't the verdict on David of some adoring fans who, like many on the political left and right, are willing to whitewash their candidates' indiscretions, no matter how serious or public, so long as their man toes the party line on key issues. No, if you open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 13, and starting to read at 13, uh, verse 13, it says, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, David, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept the command the Lord has given you. And in Acts 13:22, Paul, when he's giving his summary of the history of Israel, says of David, and when he had removed him, that is Saul, he raised David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. This is God's verdict on David, the all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-holy God. The same God who never overlooks or ignores sin and indiscretion says this of David. So how can it be that David is called a man after God's own heart? And what can we learn from his example to apply to our own lives that this might also be said of us? 
The way that I want to approach this this morning is by looking at some of the key events in David's life and looking at how he reacts or acts. I suspect when we do this, we will indeed see that God's verdict on David is true and right, and there are some lessons that we can glean from his example. There are obviously many uh, events in David's life spanning several books, and also all of the Psalms, or most of the Psalms, are David's uh, sort of reflections on those events. But I'm just going to pick out four for sake of time. Okay, so the four I'm going to look at is when David is faced with a seemingly insurmountable enemy, when he comes to the height of human power and wealth, when he's caught in a terrible sin, and when everything is stripped away. So firstly, when David is faced with a seemingly insurmountable enemy. It's not hard to get which story I'm referring to. It's quite obviously his encounter with the Philistine giant Goliath, a favorite story of Micah's that he reads often, and it probably goes some way to explaining his tendency towards violence. <clears throat> but nonetheless, it's a Bible story, so it's good for him. I know you all know the story, but I'm going to refresh your memory a bit anyway. The Philistines were a people uh, who were located in the land of Canaan, and they repeatedly brought themselves against the people of Israel. And on this one occasion, they had once again come to make war against the Israelites. When the battle lines are drawn up, the Philistines send forth their champion, a man by the name of Goliath, a man of gigantic proportions. Depending on what commentaries you read, it goes anywhere between six foot nine and nine foot nine. But even by the lowest estimate, he's still quite the colossus of a man. And Goliath would come forward every morning and extend a mocking offer to the people of Israel. That's recorded in 1 Samuel 17. So if you flick over a couple of pages, we're going to read from that section. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Notice that last line, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Saul, God's appointed king of his people, was terrified and dismayed at the challenge posed by the giant Goliath. The man who should have been leading the charge was instead cowering in fear. Enter David onto the scene, not even at the battle as a soldier, but rather as a messenger bringing food to his older and presumably much larger and more manly brothers. While on his delivery run, he sees and hears Goliath's blasphemous challenge to the people of Israel, and by extension, to the God of Israel. But unlike Saul and the rest of the people, and indeed his own brothers, 
It's not fear that grips his heart, but outrage. Hear his words later in the same chapter to the men of Israel and his brothers. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And when he's later brought before King Saul, Saul tells him, David, you're just a child. You can't possibly go up against Goliath. But David explains to the God-appointed king who the real fight is between. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And finally, upon hearing uh, his address to the giant Goliath, or sorry, finally, hear his address to the giant Goliath himself, when Goliath mocks David and curses him to his pagan gods. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the earth, or birds of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with spear and sword. For the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hand. In stark contrast to the king of Israel and his soldiers, David sees where the real power resides in this battle, and it isn't with the hulking giant Goliath. He knows that God already has the victory in the battle long before he sent that stone hurtling towards Goliath's skull. It wouldn't have mattered to David if Goliath was nine foot or 90 foot. The size of the enemy didn't matter. The God in whom he placed his trust was bigger still, and the victory was never in doubt. And so we see from this first example that when David is faced with a seemingly insurmountable enemy, he faces down fear with faith in the God who stands with him. And we know if we read on further in the story that Saul, through poor choice and decision, is eventually rejected by God as the king over Israel, and David is appointed in his place. What ensues is a rather lengthy game of cat and mouse between David and Saul, followed by Saul's eventual death and civil war between David's household and his. The outcome is that Saul's house crumbles and David's house becomes greater, eventually seeing David anointed king over all of Israel. The young shepherd boy who had spent his days watching sheep on a hillside was now the king over all of Israel. Quite the rags to riches story. How many times have we seen young people propelled to fame and fortune only overnight, only to be destroyed by it? The phrase too much too young is a well-evidenced saying in today's society. But how does David respond to his newfound fame and fortune? Does he take some time to settle into the role? to kick up his feet and, you know, enjoy some time off after the many years of struggle, sample the finer things in life? No, because David is still that same man who was on that hillside long ago, relying on God to keep him safe from lions and bears, the same young man who knew God's provision of stones and sling that guided the stone to the skull of Goliath, 
The same young man who, despite Saul's numerous deceptions and murderous intentions, had trusted God to keep him safe and experienced his protection and deliverance time and time again. And now as he stands and surveys his great riches and royal palace, what are his thoughts? Turn over to 2 Samuel now, chapter 7. In verse 1 we read, Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David is not blinded by his success, forgetting how he got there, or worse still, attributing his current standing to his own efforts. He is deeply aware that he is only there because of what God has done for him. In light of this, he is deeply troubled as he compares his dwelling to that of the ark of God, the symbol of his presence among the people. David is very aware that God outranks him as king, but he's concerned that their dwelling places do not reflect this order. God, however, is not so concerned. And instead of accepting David's offer to build him a great house, he counters this by offering to build David a house. And he goes on to promise that David's son will build a house for God and God will establish his kingdom forever and his love will abide with him forever. What is David's response to this promise of God that his lineage would be established forever? 2 Samuel 7, moving down to, to verse 18. Let's read what David says. Then David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, what am I sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if there, that were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of your house, of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done great, this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great are you, sovereign Lord? There is no one like you and there is no God but you. And as we have heard with our own ears, as we have heard with our own ears, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people as your very own forever and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you have promised so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this thing to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. What an insight into the heart and mind of David. Far from being like myself, falling, out, falling down before God and crying out to him when things are tough and I need his help, but tending to push him to the background, and if I'm honest, forget about him a little bit when things are going well. David is acutely aware and bursting with gratitude for all that God has done for him so far and all that God promises for the future. Far from being consumed or distracted by his wealth, it's his prosperity that drives him to fall at God's feet in praise and adoration. 
We often say that one of the worst things we can do is accept the gift but forget the giver. And this is not something that David was guilty of. Indeed, when David stands at the height of human power and position, he turns that wealth to worship. Thirdly then, and perhaps the one thing most of us want, jump, want to jump straight to when we consider David, I think that says more about us than him, but we need to talk about Bathsheba. I'm sure you all know the story, but once again, allow me to refresh your memory. One morning, David was looking out from his balcony in his uh, palace, and he caught sight of a particularly attractive young woman who was bathing herself. David sent servants to inquire about who she was, and he was informed that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, a man who was currently off fighting David's battle at the city of Rabbah of the Ammonites. And upon finding out this information, David promptly ignores it and commands his servants to bring her to the palace so that he might sleep with her. Bathsheba then falls pregnant. Now Uriah was a soldier and likely not a rocket scientist, but it doesn't really take one, to, uh, take one to know that if he's been away for months fighting and he comes home to find his wife pregnant, something fishy has been going on. David, being very aware of this, hatches a cunning scheme. He invites Uriah to come away from the battle to come to the palace and give him a report on how things are going. It's David's hope that Uriah will seize the opportunity on being home to reconnect with his wife and thus the legitimacy of the baby will never be in question. David failed, however, to factor one thing into his plan. Uriah was a man of honor. Instead of taking the chance to get a slap-up meal and share a comfortable bed with his wife, Uriah chooses instead to sleep on the steps of his house and not go inside. David hears this report and summons him to the palace again. Bemused, he inquires, why did you not go in and sleep with your wife? Listen to Uriah's reply. The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Well, that leaves David's plan a little stuck, but he has another angle to try. If there's one thing that's sure to loosen up this man of honor, it's a good old drinking session. So David invites him to stay another night before returning to the battle. But this time, David invites him to a feast and plies him with plenty of wine, hoping that this time he'll go home and give him some cover. However, contrary to what David was hoping, he, spends, he still doesn't return home to his wife, but rather sleeps that night at the palace with David's servants. I'm sure by this stage, David was becoming somewhat desperate, as Uriah was simply not going to let him off the hook. But David is the king after all, and not a king like our modern day kings. This was a real king with unquestioned authority over Israel. He writes a letter, essentially Uriah's death warrant, and has Uriah himself unknowingly deliver it to Joab, the commander of the army. His instruction is to have Uriah placed at the forefront of the battle where the fighting is most intense, and to be extra sure the other men are then to draw back, leaving him a sitting duck. Unsurprisingly, the result is Uriah's death, and now David is free to take Bathsheba as his own wife, and she bears him a son. For a brief time, it appears that David has got off scot-free, but God has other plans. He sends the prophet Nathan to the king in order to confront him about the whole ordeal. And if you flick to 2 Samuel 12, we'll start our reading at verse 1. 
The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to him, you are the man. Nathan then goes on to pronounce judgment on David, culminating in the death of the child born through his adultery. David is utterly distraught and broken. He lies day after day on the ground of the palace, fasting and mourning bitterly. So broken is he that when the child finally dies, his servants are too worried to even tell him, lest he kill himself. As you know, many of the Psalms are written by David, and Psalm 51 is about this very experience. It gives us an insight into the thoughts of his heart after his deepest, darkest secret has just been revealed. Let's read it together. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God and my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar." Notice what David does not do. He does not seek to justify himself, to minimize his sin, or to deflect onto someone else or his environment. No, he confesses his sin, owns them, and acknowledges that God is right and just in his judgment of him. And also notice that he knows he cannot be forgiven by any deeds of his own or his own merits. He needs God to forgive him, to wash him, to heal him, to restore him. Only then will his sacrifices and offerings be of any value, and only then can he truly prosper. 
Admittedly, and I wish I could just skip over it, I find it a tricky statement to square when he says that against you and you only have I sinned, because I suspect Uriah might have something to say about that. But my humble opinion is that David, far from denying guilt in that matter, is rather acknowledging that any wrongdoing, in any wrongdoing, God as the creator of all people and the giver of life is the primarily injured party. And God as judge can determine which other parties have suffered insult or injury, and he can judge accordingly. Note later how he asked that God would deliver him from the guilt of bloodshed, which can only be a reference to Uriah's murder. So he doesn't skip past it, but I believe that he orders things perhaps a little differently than, than we might. And so we see that when David falls into deep and terrible sin, he meets his wrongdoing with repentance. And as we follow on in the story of David, we see that his son Absalom seeks to take the throne from him. And through various treacherous schemes, he actually manages to succeed in turning many of the people away from Israel, or away from David and towards himself. So successful is his scheming that David and those of his household flee from Absalom. Again, we turn to the Psalms to get a greater insight into David's heart and mind during this period. Psalm 3, a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Men are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep and I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Imagine the despair David must have been in. It's one thing to have enemies. It's quite another when the enemy is your own son. Gone are the days of standing on the balcony of the royal palace, surveying all the good things that the Lord has given him. Now he faces not only the loss of his rule as king, but indeed potentially his own life. But see how God, our David endures despair through dependence on God. Like in his encounter with Goliath, he is not blind to the reality of the situation. He acknowledges the many foes that stand against him and those who stand back and watch his demise. But as with Goliath, he has a true measure of the battle. God is his shield and the lifter of his head. He knows that when he cries out, God answers. And he knows that he can lie down and sleep and God will cause him to wake again. Though thousands have set themselves against him, he is not afraid because he knows that God will bring about his vindication and destroy those who seek him harm. This is indeed what does happen as Absalom is killed and David's rule and authority is restored. It would be an interesting side study or perhaps an additional point uh, that we don't have time for today to see how David weeps over the death of his treacherous son who rebelled against him and how he pardons those enemies who come repentant to him. But time would definitely beat me if I tried that. Suffice to say that David is utterly dependent on God for his deliverance from this most dire situation and he is absolutely assured that this salvation will come to him regardless how his current circumstances may appear. So this morning, we have seen that David fought fear with faith, turned wealth to worship, met wrongdoing with repentance, and endured de despair through dependence. 
Why was David a man after God's own heart? It wasn't because he was perfect. It wasn't because he was some kind of superhuman. No, it was because at every point and in every circumstance, the good, the bad, and the ugly, his relationship with God was paramount. How is it that we can be men and women after God's own heart? By following David's example, by not allowing fear to make God seem too small. Isn't that what we often do? We get so caught up in the size of the enemy that we forget that our God stands above all and has promised us the victory. Granted, that victory doesn't always come this side of eternity. Not everyone will see a terminal diagnosis reversed. Not everyone will see a corrupt boss removed from their position of authority or a difficult family situation come to restoration. But there will come a day of complete restoration and victory for the people of God. We must not allow wealth to make God seem irrelevant. Now, of course, many of us would never allow ourselves to admit it. But how often do we say we depend on God, but only if we have our savings too, our private health insurance, our mortgage paid? And don't misunderstand me, all of these are good things and some are blessed by God to have them, but they should never be the thing that we cling to. They should never be the things that we chase and they should never be the things that measure our value, success, or security. We must be like David. When we are blessed to know such wealth and security, it is only because God has given them to us, and we are as dependent on him in wealth as we are in poverty, and we should learn to worship him in either circumstance. And isn't it true as well that this side of the cross, we are so assured and certain of a greater wealth, and I say it reverently, what is the loss of health, wealth, finance, position in light of eternity? You know, as Paul says, they're nothing. We must not allow unrepentant sin to make God seem distant. Oh boy, am I guilty of this. We sin and we sin again, and it's not long before the devil gets in our ear and tells us, surely you can't come to God with that again. He is going to be so disappointed. Maybe it's best just not to go to him this time. Try, try better next time. There's nothing we can do that's worse than fail to repent of our sin. Firstly, because as we've seen with the prophet Nathan, whether we come to God or not, he knows and he cares. And it robs us of our opportunity to know his loving care and restoration. Finally, we mustn't allow despair to make God seem powerless. I have a patient at the moment who will remain nameless, but she has a pretty miserable medical condition. And she doesn't deny the challenges that she faces and the pain and misery that this causes her very often. But let me tell you, this lady radiates God's care and God's provision in the midst of suffering that most of us will never understand and thankfully never have to endure. She knows that God is not powerless. She knows that God could work a miracle of healing today and remove her suffering. But she is living proof of God's even more powerful miracle of making a weak human being, prone to complaining and grumbling as we are, instead endure suffering with praise on her lips to the God who has cured her ultimate ill at the cross of his precious son. God was not powerless in David's despair, and he isn't in yours either. 
And in closing today, remember that yes, while David is a great example, we live in the time of David's greater son, Jesus, the one who is not a man after God's own heart, but God's own heart come as a man. And more than just being a human example to learn from, he promises to come by his spirit and live in the heart of every believer, writing his law on their hearts. How much more can we be men and women after God's own heart by allowing him to come into our hearts and shape them after his own desires? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for men like David, uh, men of faith, men who prioritized you in a world of distractions and despair. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to learn from his example, uh, that we too would, in all circumstances of life, seek to put you first, Lord. Whether that be at the high point, Lord, we pray that we would be people of gratitude and worship, or whether that's at our lowest, either through despair or sin. Lord, we pray that we would constantly bring every circumstance in our lives to you, the God who cares and the God who wants to restore us and to rebuild us. And Lord, we pray, thank you, thanking you most of all for Jesus, Lord, the man who is not a man after your own heart, but your own heart come as a man. Lord, we pray that we would learn from his example above all else. Lord, we thank you that, again, he comes to dwell in our hearts, Lord. And we pray that we would allow him to shape our hearts after yours so that this can be said of us too. We pray that as we part today, Lord, you would bless us, that you would go with us into our circumstances, that you would make us great witnesses for you, Lord, that even those who don't believe in you would say of us that we are people after your heart, Lord, and that that would be attractive to them. And we pray that you would save them. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.